Welcome to all those joining us for the Shir in Chaya Maharan. We're continuing. In the previous Shir, we pretty much closed the topic of Uman. Rabbeinazal's trip to Uman in order to pass away there. We're going to go now back a little bit in time and go over Rabbi Nachman's lessons in Likut Maran. There are a number of them, quite a number of them, for which we have some of the background information of what was going on at the time that prompted his saying this chapter in Likut Maran that Rav Zal documented in this book in Chaya Maran. We're going to go over those now. The first one he mentions here <coughs> is chapter 5 in Likuti Maran. Now when we say Likuti Maran, we mean the first book of Likuti Maran. When we refer to the second book, which was published after Rabbeinazal passed away, we'll say book 2. So chapter 5 there is a shear that was given by Rabbeinazal on Rosh Hashanah of the year 5,563, which in the secular calendar is 1802, in the city of Breslov. That was the first Rosh Hashanah that Rabbeinazal spent in the city of Breslov, and it was also Rabbeinazal's first Rosh Hashanah with Rabbeinazal. If you recall, Rabbeinazal lived in Nemerov, which was about 12 miles away from Breslov, and he heard that a new rabbi came to town, to the city of Breslov, and he and his friends went to see him in Elul, and Rav Zal was very impressed to the point, and he heard that the main time is Rosh Hashanah, he decided to, to be there for Rosh Hashanah, and this was his first Rosh Hashanah with Rav Zal. That year, Rosh Hashanah came out on Monday and Tuesday, and Rav Zal says, that at that time there were rumors in Ukraine regarding the de- decrees, major decrees against the Jews, which Rav Zal writes, when I'm writing this now, years after Rabbi Nachman passed away, those decrees materialized. And the, the worst one especially was drafting Jews into the Russian army. And this meant 25 years being spent in the Russian army. They would take kids, teenagers, young kids, put them into the army, for, and they were conscript, conscript, conscripted into the Tsar's army for 25 years. And there was talk about it starting then. Rav Nassenzal points out that this possibility had even been mentioned earlier when, when that part of the Ukraine was under Polish rule. However, however when the Tsar took over, which was approximately 1793. That's when they brought this up again. In the beginning, it was not spoken about, but afterwards it was revived, and there were new reports that the Tsar wanted to impose these punktin, these decrees against the Jewish people. And Rabbi Nezal gave this shir, chapter 5 on the Kudimran, which begins... A, begins with the statement that each and every single person has to say that the world was created for me, and therefore I have a responsibility to see to it, to address anything that's lacking in the world, I have to see to it to make it up. And Rabbi Nezal said that the way that we can participate in that is by davening, by praying on behalf of the world.
And in that chapter on Likut Imran, he discusses the differences between how a person prays to Hashem before a decree has been issued and a different format of prayer after a decree has already been issued. Rabbein Azalder explains that once a decree has been issued by Hashem, a negative decree against the Jewish people, then there are angels, prosecuting angels, that are active. And if a person sends up their prayer in a standard way, they'll easily be able to block it or to defer it. And therefore, a person has to cloak the prayer in a maimar. He has to cloak, hide the prayer, in a sense, in a story or in a discussion. And one of the commentaries on Likud Imran points out an example that we can see of this in our standard prayers is the tefillah, the musaf, on Rosh Hashanah. We know that Rosh Hashanah is a day of judgment, so the decrees are in place at that time, and if you'll take a look in the Musaf Shmon Esrei of Rosh Hashanah, you'll see that there are several long paragraphs there which don't seem to be an actual prayer. It's more telling a story. One of them where it tells the whole story of Noah and the flood and what took place then, it said, person wonders, what is this doing in the middle of Shmon Esrei on Rosh Hashanah? And the answer is, this, the, Reb Nachman Shirin points out, that this is an example of what Rabbi Nezal describes in this chapter on Likut Imran, that when there's judgment and we want to pray, a person has to know how to hide the prayer in a maimar. And uh, in this commentary, Rabbi Nachman Shirin points out that I heard from my father, who was one of Rabbi Nezal's students, that Rabbi Nezal hinted in this shir that unfortunately the decree had already been given in heaven for this to take place, that Jewish teenagers would be conscripted into the Russian army. But still, Rabbi Nezal worked very hard that year to try to nullify, to try to delay that decree. And his prayers were successful in deferring it and pushing it off and it didn't go into effect until 16 years after Rabbi Nezal passed away. Rabbi Nezal had earlier once commented that I succeeded in pushing off this decree for some 20 odd years. And from that point to when the decree went into effect, it was actually 25 years later. It's not mentioned here in Chaim Aran, but I'd like to mention that in that chapter in Kutim Aran, Rabbi Nezal also addresses a very delicate topic, the topic of machlekes among tzaddikim. And Rabbi Nezal there quotes a pasuk, Oizen shoymaz toichachas chayim bekerev chachomim tolun. That when a person hears machlekes bekerev chachomim, among the chachomim, among the rabbis, he hears tolun, tlunot, complaints, machlokes, the person who's hearing that has to take it as a message that Hashem is rebuking me. The fact that I'm hearing this implies there's thing, things that I need to rectify. Otherwise, I wouldn't necessarily be hearing about this. And it's an opportunity for the person to be motivated to do tshuva. And Rav Sal points out in another place that he felt that this was a, an important message for him. Because at that time, there was some machloikis against Hasidim in general still, which had started many years earlier during the time of the Baal Shem Tov, 
and unfortunately there was the Machlekes against Rabbeinazal by the Shpalazeda and some others who the Shpalazeda tried to pull into this and Rabnasnazal was aware of this and this was one of the potential tests for Rabnasnazal to come close to a young rabbi, Rabbeinazal, who was only eight years older than Rabnasnazal at the time, when Rabnasnazal had already been attached to Rab Levi Yitzchak Bardichev, Rab Shalom Paprush, great tzaddikim at that time, and yet he was still searching. And Rabnasnazal felt that this was a message for him not to question Rabbeinazal, not to question the, these tzaddikim who seemed to be in a state of machloikis, but rather just to take it as a message for himself to want to do tshuva, to want to come closer to Hashem. Rav Nosenzal points out now that that year on Shabbos Shuva, which is the Shabbos between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, Rav Nosenzal gave the shir that's, that's documented in chapter 6 in Likut Imran. This is one of the famous chapters among Breslov Hasidim. They talk about Torah Vav, chapter 6, which is called the Soid Kavonas Elul, the secret Kabbalistic thoughts that the Arizal reveals about the month of Elul. Rav Nosenzal points out that right before Rav Nosenzal started giving that shir, he mentioned, he quoted a Pasuk in Yechezkel, where it describes the throne of Hashem, the vision that Yechezkel Anovi had of the throne of Hashem. And he says there that on the chair, on this throne, was the image of a man. And Rav Nosenzal says, even though when Rav was actually giving the shir, he began with that, he started with that, in the manuscript of the shir, it's not mentioned till all the way at the end of the shir. And when Rabbi Nassau said those words, that, it, that on the chair was the image of a man, Rabbi Nassau gripped the two arms of the chair that he was sitting on with his two hands, and Rabbi Nassau said that he said with tremendous yira and intensity, if a person is sitting on the chair, then he's a man. And Rabbi Nassau says these words are very deep, the Zohar Kodesh, in Parshas Tazriya makes reference to this. And then Rabbeinazal gave that entire shir as documented in Likute Maran. The focus of that shir is the topic of tshuva, and there Rabbeinazal introduces several important concepts. Number one, that the tshuva process is a continuing process all the time. A person does tshuva, they apologize to Hashem for mistakes that they made, things that they did wrong, they express regret, and the person expresses the hope that they're not going to repeat those sins. Rabbi Nezal says there, but the next day, hopefully the person's doing mitzvahs and learning more Torah, getting to another level, they look back at their tshuva of yesterday, and they say, compared to what I realized today and what I know today, I'm embarrassed, in a sense, of the tshuva that I did yesterday. My tshuva needs tshuva. And Rabbi Nezal speaks about a concept of tshuva al tshuva, a continual process which even tzaddikim are constantly doing tshuva and tshuva on tshuva, this double tshuva. Rabbi Nezal points out this is what's alluded to 
with the statement in the Gemara, where the Gemara says, if the Jewish people would ever keep two Shabbases, Mashiach would come. The word Shabbos, Shin Beis Tov, is the same letters as the commandment in the Torah to do tshuva, which is, Vishavto Ad Hashem Alokecha. Shavta means to return, to do tshuva. So Rav Nosenzal points out that these two Shabbases represent this double tshuva. The first tshuva, where a person expresses regret for actual sins. The second tshuva, where a person expresses regret that my tshuva wasn't really what it could have been or should have been. I should have done it with much more sincerity. I could have done it much better. In that chapter, Rav Enesal also speaks about the incredible importance of realizing that the tshuva process is not a straight upward climb, but that anyone who wants to do tshuva is going to experience ups and downs, <coughs> going forward and setbacks. Boki, he speaks, the Zohar Kodesh refers to this as Boki Baratzoi, Boki Beshoiv, Ratzoi Vashoiv, going up and going down, rising and falling that both of these take place as part of the tshuva process. And Rabbi Nezal says there, a person has to learn a lot to be able to know how to serve Hashem when a person's in a state of aliyah, when a person's on an upward rise, they're feeling good and they're climbing, they're growing, they're increasing their service of Hashem. And a person has to know how to serve Hashem properly when they're in a fall or when they're going back, that kind of thing. Rabbi Nezal elaborates on this in that chapter on Likutei Moran. Rabbi Nezal points out that even though the title of that chapter is the Soid Kavon Aselul, Rabbi Nezal did not discuss it during the shir itself. The shir was given on Shabbos at Mincha time, as he usually did when he gave a shir on Shabbos, and after they finished the shir, they, they davened Mairiv, they made Havdalah, and then the people were standing around with Rabbi Nezal, and Rabbi Nezal was discussing the shir that took place beforehand, as was his custom. And then he said to some of the leading elders that were present at the time, who used to daven from the Siddur of the Arizal, these were people who were knowledgeable in Kabbalah, and they daven from the Siddur of the Arizal, which points out the special kavonas, the special mystical kavonas that a person is supposed to have in the different paragraphs of tefillah. And Rabbi Nezal said to them as a challenge, let me, tell me how in the shir that I gave earlier are found allusions to the mystical secrets that the Arizal reveals about the month of Elul. Rabbi Nezal says, they, they stood there, they sat there in silence without being able to answer at all because a person who looks at the chapter in Likud Imran and looks at what the Arizal writes, at first glance, you don't see the connection at all. And then Rabbi Nezal said to them, bring me the Siddur. They brought the Siddur of the Arizal and he opened it up and showed them the section dealing with the Kavonis of Elul and then Rav Nosenzal says he began to reveal the most incredible, incredible, clear explanation 
showing how what he referred to in that chapter on Likutiman, Boki Baratsoi, Boki Beshoi, knowing how to climb, knowing how to fall, how this was related to the Shem Yaboik, which the Arizal speaks about, and he gives an incredible explanation showing the parallel between the whole lengthy explanation of the Arizal there, all the different names of Hashem, and how it ties in beautifully with the explanation, how Rabbi Nezal explained the methodology of tshuva. And Rabbi Nezal says there's no way to, to put into writing the feeling that I had at the time, the incredible spiritual high in seeing this, seeing this unbelievable revelation of Torah that, that wasn't obvious at all to any of us. And, and we saw what Rabbi Nezal was able to reveal. After Shabbos, Rabbi Nezal also discussed another part of that chapter in Likutumran, that same shir, where he spoke about Moshe Rabbeinu and Yehoshua, his closest student, and the tent where they would meet, where Moshe Rabbeinu would teach Yehoshua. And Rabbi Nezal in that chapter in Likutumran refers to that also relating it to the tshuva process, that he speaks about the sun and the moon and the sky which unites both of them and he speaks about the rabbi and the student the rabbi is like the sun the student is like the moon and the tent which unites them because on that shabbos shabbos shuvah the haftorah that we read the i'm sorry the portion in the torah that we read parshas vayelech is where hashem tells moshe rabbeinu you're going to be leaving the world shortly summon, call your student Yoshua, bring him into the tent and turn over to him the, the responsibility of the leadership of Kal Yisrael. And that's also part of that same chapter in Likud Imran. Rab Nosanzal says that Rabbi Nosanzal told me that whenever a rabbi and student get together, it's an example, it's a, it's a, 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 it comes into the similar to this concept of Moshe Rabbeinu and Yehoshua getting together in the Oihel Moed, in that special tent. Rav Nosanzal says, all of this took place when I was first, when I first, that first Rosh Hashanah that I came to Rav Nosanzal. And at that point, I was not the one writing down his major lessons. I would only recall, record his shorter remarks. And for a considerable length of time, I was yearning to, have, to, to be able to get a copy of Rabbi Nezal's writing of this shir that he gave on Shabbos Shuva, which is maybe seven, eight pages, a long, elaborate shir. But I, I was not privileged to until after Purim. We're talking about four or five months later, when I was with him in the city of Medvedevka, when Rabbi Nezal had gone for a wedding of one of his daughters, then I sat with him and wrote over the lesson as he dictated me, dictated to me from his own notes, word for word. He, Rabbi Nezal would read and I would write. A short while later, Rabbi Nezal said, Rabbi Nezal writes, I was with Rabbi Nezal one time in the evening and Rabbi Nezal was sitting on his bed and he was, it looked like he was about to go to sleep. And I spoke to him at length and it was then he revealed to me how the three commandments, the three mitzvahs that Hashem gave the Jewish people to fulfill upon entering Eretz Yisrael are also related to this chapter in Likutei Maran.
the three mitzvahs are to destroy Amalek, to appoint a king, and to build the Beis HaMikdosh. So I asked Rabbeinazal, how is this tied into the topic of tshuva? And Rabbeinazal said, this I want you to tell me. Rabbeinazal says, I started thinking about this immediately, and as I was walking from Rabbeinazal to the place where I was staying, the inn where I was staying, Hashem gave me some beautiful thoughts related to this. And as soon as I got to my, my hotel, I wrote this down, and, I, and this was the beginning of my initiation into developing chidushim, developing new insights based on Rabbeinazal's teachings. And Rabbeinazal points out, it's incredible how, in what a sweet way Rabbeinazal introduced me to this. The following day, I brought my notes to him, and Rabbeinazal was very pleased. And he smiled and said, you'll be able to learn if you'll be persistent. However, Rabbeinazal says, I was still, I still had to, I wasn't yet ready to write, to be the one to write Rabbeinazal's major lessons until I would first cover more ground in halacha and the study of Kabbalah. Then Rabbeinazal instructed me to start thinking of Chidushe Torah, new revelations in Torah, and later on he told me to start writing them. I don't usually like to talk that much about personal things, but this, this lesson, this number six, has a special, special point in my life. When I met my Rebbe, Rav Rosenfeld, it's a long story <coughs> how I first met him. A friend of mine invited me to a shear. He didn't say anything about Breslov at the time, just a shear. And it was a shear being given in the Sephardic Institute of Higher Learning in, in Brooklyn, in Flatbush, on Ocean Parkway and Avenue Ara. And it was my first experience going into a Syrian shul. And I came there, and the shear was being given in the evenings, mostly for people who worked during the day. I was in high school at the time still. I was one of the youngsters at the shear. And the rabbi came in, and it was interesting that he, he looked seeming like, seemingly like a very ordinary person. He was clean-shaven at the time, wasn't even wearing a hat, dressed immaculately as suit, sat down and gave the shear, interesting, and then went to another shear, another shear, and slowly, gradually started seeing how unique, how special this rabbi was and what he was teaching, even though he was teaching Ein Yaakov, stories of the Gemara. But he would instill in these stories, he would bring things from the Arizal, from the Baal Shem Tov, from Rabbeinazal, from other Sforim, which added incredible, incredible insights to the stories of the Gemara. Then my friend told me that on Shabbos, the rabbi, the, the weekday shurim are like, are medium level, intermediate. On Shabbos, he gives a much higher shir. So I said to him, you, 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 you're able to attend those shurim? He said, yeah. I said, how? I knew we, where we lived was about an hour walk from there. He said, I walked there. What's, what's, the, what's the problem? And, and Hashem put it in my mind to ask him, can I, can I join you? He said, why not? We'll meet at a certain place. We'll walk together. We started walking together. 
And during those walks, he started telling me a little bit more gradually about Breslov, different things. And then at one point, <clears throat> he agreed to learn with me. We attended the same shul where my father davened, and they would have a kiddush every Shabbos. People would go down, they, they davened on an upper floor, and then they'd go down to the basement to the shul for the kiddush. And most people stayed around at the kiddush for 20 minutes. We went down together. We would spend about five minutes there, kiddush, eat something, make a bracha chrona, and then go upstairs. And this friend started teaching me Likud Imran. And he taught me the first six chapters of Likud Imran inside. It was my first introduction to a Hasidish Sefer, which is very different from other types of learning. And it was interesting, it was awesome, some of it, you know, new concepts, quoting the Zohar Kodesh, quoting the Arizal, it was eye-opening to me. But I remember when we learned this chapter on the Kutumran, chapter 6, and when we learned this part where Rabbi Nezal takes the writings of the Arizal and his own shir and puts them together perfectly to show how he's adding a practical, incredible insight to the Arizal's mystical, Kabbalistic revelations I remember a certain feeling that I can't imagine that there's anything, there's any book, any safer that's better than this. This has to be the top of the top, the best of the best. I remember like this is one of the things that did it for me, that I said, this is my place. And I, I thank Hashem till today, Baruch Hashem, that I was zeichet, that I was zeichet to stay, hopefully, and, and be able to continue learning from Rav Rosenfeld and learning Likut Imran. At one point I borrowed, I found out that he had recorded the entire Likut Imran in those days on cassettes. Actually, I think it was recorded originally on a, on a uh, wheel-to-wheel tape recorder that they used in the 1960s. And then it was transferred onto cassettes. And I asked him if I could borrow those cassettes. And he said, okay, we're going to do it like this. I'll give you two cassettes. When you finish, you get another two. And be very careful. That was his original copy. And Baruch Hashem, Hashem helped that I was to listen to those cassettes and to hear an accurate, clear translation of every chapter in Likut Imran. Those shiurim were done quickly. He, he did it as a means, if a person would want to review Likut Imran, or a person would want to learn it as quickly as possible, this was, if I recall, 63 cassettes each cassette, an hour and a half, 45 minutes on each side, and, and till today I, I feel the incredible benefits of having heard those shirin. Any questions, please? Yes, hi, Rabbi. Please. Are those available on the, the Breslov uh, account online? The answer is they are available on our website, breslovtorah.com. <clears throat> We, we, they, were, they were recorded, again, about 60, 70 years ago. So the sound quality at that time wasn't anything like what recordings are today. We've invested money to try to improve the sound quality and to raise the different things. It's as good as we've been able to make it now. And if a person concentrates, you can listen and hear. He goes at a quick pace. His, he wasn't trying to explain everything. He was trying to translate every word, every Gemara, every Zohar, every Arizal, everything. There are some places here and there that he quickly 
injects some beautiful additional things. If you're paying attention, you can catch it. But it's an incredible good way to learn Likud Imran from someone who knew it very, very clearly and well and knew all the sources that Likud Imran draws from very well. Anyone else, please? Okay, Rav Sal continues. Before Rabbein Sal gave the shear that's listed as chapter 7 in Likud Imran, Rav Sal says, I had already heard... <coughs> What today is documented as chapter 112 in Likut Imran. And I wrote that one down. I was the one who was privileged to write over that shear. Later on, Rabbein Azal gave a shear which today appears in Likut Imran chapter 9, which includes a lot of what's in 112. This is an unusual thing in the Likut Imran. You don't find this thing just about almost anywhere else where these two chapters in Likut Imran, chapter 9 and 112, are very similar. They're not identical at all whatsoever. There are things in each one that aren't in the other one, but the, the, the general concept is the same. Many of the things that are in there are very similar, but it's two different presentations of this, this same concept, which speaks about tefillah, especially about tefillah, an incredible, elaborate explanation of many things, many components that affect a person's tefillah, which tribe of the 12 tribes a person comes from, and, and that the fact that many of us, all of us just about, encounter extraneous thoughts when we're trying to pray, and how to deal with that, how a person, when a person feels themselves surrounded by that darkness of those extraneous thoughts, how do you get out of there? How do you find the exit sign to get out? Rabbi Nezal speaks about MS and many other beautiful things that are mentioned in these two chapters. Afterwards, Rabbi Nezal says, after those two shirim were given, then we received what appears today as chapter 7 in Likut Imran, and Rabbi Nezal gave it piecemeal. And when he did, he mentioned that the Baal Shem Tov, his great-grandfather, had come to him, and, and, and the Baal Shem Tov told him that when people do something against Eretz Yisrael, they fall into exile, they go into exile, into Golos. And this is, the Baal Shem Tov said, this is alluded to in a sentence in the Torah where it says, Mishom Roya Evan Yisrael. From there, the shepherd, the stone of Eretz Yisrael, draws. And Rabbi Nassau asked us, do we have any explanation? Can we explain what the Baal Shem Tov told him? And we didn't know what to answer at all. Afterwards, Rabbi Nassau says, when, my, when I was showing Rabbi Nassau, the copy that I, how I had written up chapter 112 in Likud Imran, Rabbi Nassau was looking at it very carefully, and he quoted the Mishnah in Pirkei Avos where it says that I learned a lot from my rabbis, more from my colleagues, and still more from my students. And Rabbi Nassau was implying that in this lesson, in this shir that I had written down, Rabbi Nassau says, when Rabbi Nassau was reading it over, he, he, this gave him an explanation of that vision that he had with the Baal Shem Tov. 
And Rabbi Nezal said, now I understand very well what the Baal Shem Tov was referring to. Then he went ahead and completed Lesson 7 in Likut Imran, which speaks about Emunah, it speaks about Eretz Yisroel, and it speaks about how when a person sins, when a person shows a lack of Emunah, a lack of faith, and when, when they sin against the land of Eretz Yisroel, they end up going into exile in Egypt. And Rav Zal says, I asked Rabbi Nassal at the time, is this related to that vision you told us with the Baal Shem Tov? And Rabbi Nassal said, that already I understand completely. I, I know that very, very thoroughly already. Afterwards, Rav Zal says, I received a copy, Rabbi Nassal's copy, of lesson number nine in Likut Imran, which includes part of 112, and at the end, it includes this pasuk, Mishom Roya Evan Yisrael. And Rav Zal says, a person studying these chapters will be able to get an understanding, a little bit of understanding of the meaning of that vision with the Baal Shem Tov. It's a little bit long to go into now, if a person will look at those chapters in Likud Imran, you'll, get a, an, you'll see where that Pasuk is mentioned and some clarification regarding it. The next paragraph, Rav Nosanzal says that Torah 8 in Likud Imran was a shear that was given that year on Shabbos Hanukkah, which is one of the main times that Rav Nosanzal wanted his students to come to him. And it includes part of that, Rabbi Nezal speaks about how a person can succeed in bringing about the downfall of Rishoim and to, to humble them. <clears throat> There's a Pasuk in Tehillim, Mashbil Rishoim Adei Oretz. Hashem lowers the evil people down to the ground. And Rabbi Nezal points out in that chapter on Likud Imran, he speaks about the four basic elements of creation which are Eish, Ruach, Mayim, and Ofer. Fire, air, water, and dust. These are the four basic elements and components of creation. And Rabbi Nassau there speaks about the fact that in each one of these, there's a good side and a bad side. There's good fire, there's constructive fire, and there's destructive fire. There's constructive water, which is the source of nourishment to the world, and then there's a flood, a tsunami, which destroys each one of them. And Rabbi Nezalvir shows that a tzaddik who is to perfect these four elements, to separate the bad, to get rid of the bad aspects of these elements, and to connect and attach oneself to the good of these four basic elements, that tzaddik achieves a level where he can bring about the downfall of the rishon, the wicked people. But it's got to be a tzaddik gomor, a tzaddik who is 100% completely pure. Because if the tzaddik is not completely pure and he engages a Russia at the time that the Russia is in power, the Russia can chas even defeat the tzaddik. So this is a very delicate point. The Gemara says that in certain instances, a Russia can swallow up one who is more righteous than him. 
And the Gemara says, one who is more righteous than him, he can swallow. But one who is totally righteous, the Russia cannot swallow. And there Abenazal explains being totally righteous means perfecting these four basic elements. Because the first letters of these four elements, Eish, Ruach, Mayim, Ofer, Aleph, Reish, Mayim, Mem, Ayin, are the same four letters as the first letters of Mashpil, Rishoim, Adei, Oretz. The person lowers the evil, wicked people to the ground. And Rav Nosenzal says that at that same period of time, Rabbi Nosenzal brought about the downfall of a certain major Russia in the city of Nemerov, where Rav Nosenzal lived, who had caused major suffering to Rabbi Nosenzal's followers. And this happened right after Hanukkah, right after Rabbi Nosenzal gave this lesson, that this Russia had a major mapola. Another comment that Rabbi Nezal said about this chapter in the Kutimran, he said, if anybody asks you, when you went to Rabbi Nachman, what did you accomplish this Shabbos Hanukkah? You can tell them, Ruach, wind, or air. And Rabbi Nezal says, this was true, because a major aspect of that chapter in the Kutimran was where Rabbi Nezal spoke about the fact that when Hashem first created the world, the Torah tells us, Bidvar Hashem Shamayim Nasu, Uberuach Piv Kol Tzivon. Hashem created heaven through his words and with the breath of his mouth, Uberuach Piv, with Ruach Piv, all of the angels in heaven. And in that chapter, Mikutimran, Rabbi Nezal says that whenever we see something imperfect, something that's lacking, the implication is that some of that ruach is lacking, some of that spirit, the word ruach also means spirit, some of the life spirit of that item is lacking. Where does, where does one draw this life spirit from? From the Torah. Because the Pasuk says in the beginning of creation, the divine ruach of Hashem, the divine spirit of Hashem, hovers over the waters. Which waters? The waters of the Torah. That's where this Ruach HaLekim is found. And Rabbi Nassau explains in that chapter in Likud that in order for us to be able to draw that Ruach, we have to receive it via the Tzaddik. The Tzaddik is also called Ruach. When Moshe Rabbeinu was told to appoint Yehoshua as the student to take over after him, it says there, Ish Asher Ruach Boy, the one who has the divine spirit in him. The tzaddik is called Ruach. And Rabbi Nezal says, by us connecting to the tzaddik, the tzaddik is able to give us that Ruach HaChaim that he receives from the Torah. He's able to pass it on to us and thereby complete anything that's lacking inside of us, in our lives, in our parna, in anything related to us. So again, one of the focuses of that chapter in Likud Imran was this Ruach. So Rabbi Nezal said jokingly, if anybody tells you, what did you learn from Rabbi Nachman this Shabbos Hanukkah? You'll tell him, Ruach, wind, air. Rabbi Nezal adds, that on that Shabbos Hanukkah after the Shir, Rabbi Nezal danced a lot, as he did several times throughout that year. 
because this was one of the major ways Rav Enesal was addressing those decrees that we mentioned earlier. Rav Enesal explains in several chapters in Likut Imran that by dancing and clapping hands, that's one of the ways that we can eliminate evil decrees. Any questions? Um, regarding uh, Torah 9 and uh, Torah uh, 112, the, the fact that Torah 9 uh, kind of includes most of what's in Torah 112, does Rav Nussan talk about, is that why he writes uh, exclusively between the two of those uh, halachos on Torah 9 versus nothing on Torah 112? I, I haven't seen it written, but it sounds like a reasonable explanation. Even though, if you look at Torah 112, in some ways it's much clearer. It's a much clearer, easier to understand explanation of some of the concepts that are mentioned in Torah 9. And there are some unique statements in Torah 112 that aren't in 109, one of the fa- in, in chapter 9. In fact, one of the famous statements there in chapter 112, where Rabbi Nezal said it's worth it, for a person to pray to Hashem their entire life, for Hashem to give the person the privilege to be able to speak one word of pure truth during their lifetime. This is a statement made in that chapter 112 where Rabbi Nezal gives us an idea, an insight regarding this term emes, truth. How we find ourselves in an oil sheker, we are in a world of falsehood, and even the religious people, and even Talmud Chachamim sometimes, who are connected to the Torah on a certain level, even they have to strive very hard constantly to refine and refine, to get to higher and purer levels of emes, of truth. The Dovra Melech asks for this in Tehillim. Hashem, please show me, guide me how to go with your truth. Not my truth, not his truth, not her truth. There are many people who say they know what's right. They know what's what's the real truth. We know that that's not so easy to come by. In our Likut HaLocha Shirem that we have every morning, we're learning a chapter on Likut HaLocha's Hilchas Ribis, Halocha Hei, where Rav Zal elaborates on this topic in a big way, speaking about emes and emes la'amitoi, the truth and the real truth, which is something, a term that the Gemara uses. And Rav Zal, both Rav Zal and Rav Zal elaborate on this, that this is a lifelong pursuit to try to become more honest and more honest and more honest with myself, with Hashem, and with, with everything I do. Anyone else, please? Nesson. Yes. Uh, on clapping, when we clap during davening or at any other time, we're doing it from a place of joy. We're clapping through joy. Is that the or is or is there any instruction vis-a-vis good, the clapping? Good question. Good question. The answer is that sometimes it could be an expression of joy. Like, let's say, Friday night, a person davens in a good shul, in a breast of shul, or a good shul, and they're singing L'chadoidi. And people are happy, they're excited that it's Shabbos. 
no phones, no work, no dressed in my Shabbos clothes, looking forward to the Shabbos meal with the family, all of the happy things, you know, that, that, we, that are taking place, that are going to take place, hopefully, during Shabbos, and the clapping is an expression of joy and happiness, and sometimes it doesn't have to be happiness. It's an expression of enthusiasm, enthusiasm. Dovra Melech says in Tehillim, Kol toimarno Hashem All of my bones proclaim, Hashem, there's no one like you. So it could be it's coming from a place of joy and happiness, and that's great. And sometimes, even if it's not that, it's an enthusiasm, an excitement with the tefillah, with the words of tefillah, that I'm speaking to Hashem, I'm expressing some of the deepest thoughts and feelings, you know, of, of my, and wanting to connect with Hashem. Thank you. Can I ask a question about please, clapping? Please. So, if we find ourselves in a Litvak shul, and we're the only one that goes to Rav Nassim Maimon's shir, and we're excited and we're clapping, and someone says, you know, you could have disturbed someone, and then he tells you, I once heard from an altar yid, and the rope just explained, what, what should I, I mean, I don't want to hurt anyone, but essentially what you just said, Rob, is how I feel. So can the Rob just give a quick answer? The, the answer is parental discretion advised, meaning a person has to use discretion depending on where you are and what the circumstances are at the time. If it's l'chadodi in a shul where people are clapping, then a person can clap freely. If it's not l'chadodi, or if it's in a shul where no one else is clapping, it doesn't say anywhere that a person has to clap loudly, where someone else can hear. A person can clap their hands, and nobody else knows I'm doing it other than me, other than me. It doesn't have to be with, loud, with any loud noise. And again, there are some opinions, there are some opinions in halacha that question whether you're allowed to clap your hands on Shabbos because it's like making music, etc. But for those who, who encounter this, there are also opinions in halacha that say that it is permissible, 100%. And my Rebbe Rav Rosenfeld, who was a paisek, who was very well versed in all areas and all opinions of halacha, told his students clearly that we can rely on, we can follow those opinions that say a person is allowed to clap on Shabbos in tefillah. Applause, when a person says something doesn't go to applause, that's something that all opinions, I believe, or many, most opinions agree, should not be done on Shabbos or Yontif. Applause. But clapping together with singing or music or something like that, there are strong opinions in halacha that say it is permitted. Thank you, Rabbi. The first 14... I'm sorry, a question. Yes, Rabbi. Please. When you mentioned that Yeshua came to the, the, the meeting with Moshe with the Divine Spirit, I was wondering, did Rabbi Nussan also come with the divine spirit and you also mentioned that he had to increase his halachas was there anything else that was re required from him from rabbi nuss uh, from uh from the rebbe in order to give over what he had the the answer is definitely not number one meaning that Again, Rabbi Nassau pointed out that whenever a rabbi and student get together, 
it's a form of this Moshe Rabbeinu and Yoshua getting together in the tent. Now, just as during the time of Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe Rabbeinu had many students, we don't hear too much about the other ones, Aaron Akohen maybe to a degree and his sons, but the focus is that the one who was closest to Moshe Rabbeinu was Yehoshua, and therefore Moshe Rabbeinu transferred the leadership of the Jewish nation to Yehoshua when Moshe Rabbeinu passed away. In the case of Rabbeinu Zal and Rabbeinu Zal, there were also several indications that Rabbeinu, from the beginning, that Rabbeinu Zal was preparing him, grooming him, preparing him to be the one that would be able to take over the leadership after Rabbeinu Zal passed away. And Rabbeinu Zal showed that same level of loyalty as Yehoshua, sticking to the rabbi like glue, spending days and weeks and nights at times with Rabbeinu Zal at great sacrifice. Rabbeinu Zal loved his wife, he loved his children, he needed personal time. All of those were very true. He understood the incredible, critical importance that if he wouldn't spend that time with Rabbi Nachman, Rabbi Nachman's teachings would be lost. They would not be available to us for generations to come. And therefore, whenever it was possible, he spent tremendous quality time with Rabbi Nezal, and he wrote down everything he could possibly write. Even he says there were times that something wasn't written down at the time and it was lost but he did everything he possibly could to be the Yehoshua. And we've told a story in the past, there was once a time, there was a Purim, when Rabbi was in a different city, I believe it was again based on a wedding of one of his children, and Rabbi traveled through the snow, snow and storms, to get to Rabbi to be with him at the time. He wanted desperately to be with Rabbi for Purim, and in the end, he didn't make it. He ended up showing up Shushan Purim. Purim he spent in a village close by. He didn't get there quick enough. He had to hear the Megillah and start the, the holiday of Purim in a, in a village close by. And when he arrived, he was feeling terrible in a sense that he missed out on Purim with Rabbeinazal. And Rabbeinazal smiled and he told him, Shushan Purim is also Purim. And we know that one of the laws of Shushan Purim is that's the time when those cities that have a wall around them from the time of Yehoshua, from the time of Yehoshua Benun, they celebrate Shushan Purim. And Rabbi Nezal implied, this is your holiday. It's not, it's not coincidence that this happened, that again, a major connection between these two took place on Shushan Purim at that time. In terms of additional items, obviously one of the most important things was a lot of tefillah, a lot of prayer that Rav Nassau had to daven very, very hard to be to be a real good student. And Rav Nassau told his students years later, his own students, that there were times when he spent Shabbos with Rav Nassau, and Friday night they would be with Rav Nassau. sometimes they would eat with Rav Nassau, or Rav Nassau would speak Divrei Torah, as we're going to see shortly, on Friday night. He would give a shir on Friday night, the other students very often would leave the shir and go home, go to sleep. Rav Nosazal would go up to the, to the mountain overlooking the Bug River, screaming, begging Hashem, Hashem, I see that there's a very bright light. There's a raging fire burning here in Breslov, this tzaddik. Please shine that, put, bring that fire into my heart. Help me be to connect to this rabbi 
as best as I possibly can. And it's the combination of his tefillah and his Torah, his praying and his learning and all the other good things he did that, that put him in this incredible position to be the prime student of Rabbi Nachman, where everything we're learning now is, is, is thanks to his closeness to Rabbi Nazan. Thank you. Sure. We'll close with... Can I ask a quick question? Please, go ahead. Did Rabbeinu Zal write any of the Torahs himself, or Nelson wrote everything? The answer is definitely. We've mentioned this in the past, that many, not, I'd say maybe 5%, there's about 400 chapters in Likud Imran. Maybe 5%, it says in front of the chapter, Loshoin Rabbeinu Zal, which means that Rabbeinu Zal gave Rab Nelson Zal his actual notes to write over. And what we have there is Rabbi Nachman's own writing, his version of the chapter. The rest of Likut Imran was written by Rab Zal, where Rab Zal would listen to the shir, he would go afterwards, write it over, bring it to Rabbi Nazal for reviewing and editing. And Rabbi Nazal would review it with him and make corrections, and you forgot this, you forgot that, etc. Rabbi Nazal reviewed just about every single chapter in Likut Imran that we have. One closing item for today, the first 14 chapters in Likud Imran are based on the stories of Rabbi Bar Barchana, one of the great rabbis that's mentioned in Shas many times, Rabbi Bar Barchana, who was one of the primary students of Rabbi Yochanan, the famous Rabbi Yochanan. And there's a place in Masech de Baba Basra, page 74, where the Gemara there lists about 20 stories that Rabbi Barbarchana told stories, visions, sometimes they're called the guzmois, the exaggerations of Rabbi Barbarchana, because these are fantastic stories. And Rabbi Nazal said that when he started looking into these, Rabbi Barbarchana came to him and asked him, why don't you concentrate on my stories and I will reveal to you incredible chidushim, incredible new insights on these stories. And anyone who learns those 14 chapters on Likud Imran will be very, very impressed by, by the stories. The stories appear to be like fantasy, and Rabbi Nezal gives incredible explanations that teach us how to serve Hashem based on those stories. We should be zerched to learn the Likutim Aran, the Chaim Aran, the Sforim, and be inspired and be motivated to come close to Hashem, to serve Hashem, and be zerched to get to see the Geula Shleimah, Bimheira B'Yameinu, Amen V'Yameinu. The following week, this the, we're, we're speaking now, we're broadcasting from Yerushalayim. Next week I intend to be in the United States. Tomorrow night I'm leaving the Yitz Hashem for the United States. I hope we'll be zerched to continue this Sunday shiurim from there, Mitzvah Shem. Baruch Hashem.